If I haven't met you yet, my name is Brett Wiley, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to uh, open the scriptures with you this morning. And if you are joining us for the first time today, the last month or so, we've been journeying through the life of David in 1 Samuel. The last couple of weeks, Pastor Andy has looked at the ideas of, of friendship and envy as we've looked at the relationships between David and Jonathan and between David and Saul. This morning, we're going to be fast-forwarding a little bit in the life of David to 2 Samuel 6. And if you heard it just now, maybe it's a seemingly confusing passage, yet I believe it's an important story for us. So I want to ask the Lord to be with us and and just pray together, ask him to give us ears to hear what he has to say say to us. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we do. We bow and ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would fill us with your spirit. We need a word from you this, this morning, Lord. Would you give us ears to have, ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning, not just what we want to hear, but what you have to say, Lord. And that's not a physical hearing, Lord. That's a spiritual hearing. So would you open us? our eyes and minds and hearts and ears to your word, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible says some crazy things about God. We know this, right? I mean, some crazy things. Like, did you know that the Bible tells us that right now, in this very moment, that God sits enthroned while living creatures called seraphim fly around his throne. And the prophet Isaiah says that these creatures have six wings and with two they cover their face and with two they cover their feet and with two they fly. And the apostle John tells us that they never stop repeating day and night and saying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What? Why do they keep saying these things day and night? Why do they never stop? Is it because God makes them do it? No. It's because it's true. It was true in eternity past. It's true in this very moment. And it'll be true 10,000 years from now. They keep saying it because God's holiness compels them to. They can't help but say it. And they will only stop saying it When God stops being holy, so never. He is and always will be the holy, holy, holy God. And we have to ask, what kind of God is this? And maybe we need to ask, is this the God that we believe in this morning? We love the passages that say that God is love. But do we love the passages that say that God is holy? Because there's a lot of them. I believe his holiness is the key idea that we are confronted with in this story this morning. And as we read 2 Samuel 6, I want us to notice three things. A a holy ambition, a holy God, and a holy dance. So as we turn to our text, let's first notice a holy ambition that David had. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. David assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. 
He and all his troops set out to bring the Ark of God from Bel Judah, or Kiriath Judah, as it's called elsewhere. The Ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. Let me catch us up just a little bit on how we got to where we are in 2 Samuel 6. If you remember, really generally the last time that we saw David in 1 Samuel, he's already the, the anointed king, but Saul still sits on the throne. So he's serving in Saul's court, he's serving in his military, but then we saw last week that Saul became jealous and envious of David to the point that he wanted to actually kill him with a spear. And from that time on, there was this cycle really of David, um, of, of Saul attempting to kill David, David fleeing to the wilderness, and then even a couple times where David is giving a chance to take Saul out and he, he doesn't do it. And you see this cycle happening in 1 Samuel. And at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and David's dear friend Jonathan are killed in battle with the Philistines. So the first really five chapters of 2 Samuel are, are really the aftermath of Saul and Jonathan's death. David is slowly consolidating his power as he becomes king of Judah defeats the last holdouts of Saul's house. He captures the land that will be Jerusalem. And he's ultimately in chapter five, crowned king over all the tribes of Israel. So as we come to the beginning of chapter six this morning, the shepherd boy that was anointed king by Samuel is finally king over Israel. And one of his first acts as king is to gather a large group of his men and to go and retrieve the ark of the Lord and to bring it back to Jerusalem. This is a good thing. It's a good idea. This is a holy ambition. But to understand the significance of this event, we really need to understand the significance of the ark of the covenant. When God made his covenant with his people in the book of Exodus, after he freed them from slavery in Egypt, he gave them some instructions for making a sanctuary, a, a tabernacle where his presence would dwell amongst them. And the central focal point of the tabernacle was to be this ark. It's a wood box overlaid with gold. And, and if that was all it was, then it wouldn't really matter to us. But inside the ark were the stone tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments. And on top of the ark, there was this solid gold lid called the mercy seat, where there were two angels that sat on either end facing one another with their wings extended towards one another. Listen to what Moses says about the ark. He says, set the mercy seat on top of the ark and put the tablets of the testimony that I gave you into the ark. I will meet you there above the mercy seat. Let me read that again. I will meet you there above the mercy seat. Between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. It was on the ark, within the Holy of Holies, within the tabernacle, that God's presence would dwell amongst the Israelites, ruling and speaking and reconciling. And it was there once a year that Leviticus chapter 16 tells us that on the day of atonement, the high priest would go behind the veil, behind the curtain, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. You see, the ark was the central symbol of Israel's faith 
and covenant with God. This is why David was going to retrieve it in 2 Samuel 6 and why it's so significant. This is how Del Ralph Davis sums it up. He says, all the hubbub and Kiriath-Jerim really matters then. By bringing the ark to Zion, David is saying that Yahweh's presence can no longer remain, so to speak, on a side rail, but must be the central focus and reality of the Davidic kingdom. The worship of Yahweh, this ruling, reconciling, and revealing God must be at the heart of Israel's life. The ark in Jerusalem proclaims that the majestic, pardoning, speaking God is in the midst of his people. Bringing the ark to Jerusalem was truly a holy ambition for David. He was making a statement about his regime, his kingdom, and how it would be different than the previous one. For whatever reason, the ark had become sidelined in the life of Israel. So much so that it's only mentioned once, really, in the whole rule and reign of Saul, which we believe was about 40 years. The very symbol of God's presence and relationship with his people was at best not prioritized and at worst forgotten altogether as it was left in Abinadab's house for years. And I just wonder if there isn't a word for her for us this morning as we think about the story of the ark. We don't have an ark or a tabernacle where we go and meet with God, but we do have a book called the Bible where God has said that he has spoken to us and still speaks to us. We do have prayer where we have direct and immediate access to the God of all the universe. And if you are a Christian, we have God himself dwelling in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are now the tabernacle of God. How privileged we are as new covenant believers. But despite all those gifts, God still gets pushed to the sidelines often for us, doesn't he? Maybe it's busyness or life or apathy or sin, but the one worthy of all of our devotion and focus and time gets pushed to the margins of our lives and the best given the scraps of our days and weeks and at worst ignored altogether until we come to an emergency situation where we need to throw up a request. So I ask the question, what place does God have in your heart and life this morning? For one reason or another, has he been pushed to the sidelines of your life and devotion? What, what would it look like for you to make him central once again, to recenter your life and devotion on him. Really, we could say that the key battle of the Christian life is this battle to bring Jesus to the center of our lives and to decentralize ourselves. David had a holy ambition at the beginning of 2 Samuel 6 to bring back God's presence to the center of the life of Israel. This was the right idea, but as we'll see, Things don't go according to plan because they forgot they were dealing with a holy God. Let's consider the holy God together. Read with me, starting in verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house. On the hill. 
Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments, lyres and harps, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to touch the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. Can you picture the scene? Maybe you think of a big parade you've witnessed before. I think of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, right? You have all the people all dancing and singing and having joy. David is leading the procession. The Charlie Brown balloon is being pulled down the hill. We're getting ready for the high school band from somewhere nobody's ever heard of to play. But then there's a scream. The music stops. And everybody turns around to see a man lying on the ground, not moving. What is going on here? Maybe you can feel your chest tightening up or your mind starting to swirl in confusion, even as I read this text. We just said that what David and the people are doing is a good thing, a a holy ambition. So why, when Uzzah, who was helping to bring the ark to Jerusalem tries to keep the ark from sliding because the oxen had stumbled, does God kill him? Wasn't he just trying to be helpful? What is going on here? Is this just God being mean and harsh? Is this just a confirmation that the God of the Old Testament is angry and the God of the New Testament is loving this accusation that we've heard time and time again? Why did Uzzah die. I would suggest to you that it was because to Uzzah and to some degree David forgot who they were dealing with. They forgot who God was and they forgot what the ark was and, and tragically Uzzah forgot who he was. What do I mean by that? You see, God had given very clear instructions on how the holy objects and the ark specifically were to be handled and transported. Numbers 4 through 6, 4, 4 through 6 says this, the service of the Kohathites. The Kohathites were a specific family or clan in the tribe of Levi, which is the tribe of priests. The service of the Kohathites at the tent of meeting concerns the most holy objects. Whenever the camp is about to move on, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the curtain and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. They are to place over this a covering made of fine leather, spread a blue cloth on top and insert its poles. And then verse 15 says, the Kohathites will come and carry them, but they are not to touch the holy objects or they will die. God was very clear on how these things were to be handled and how the tabernacle was to be moved. Again, especially the ark. It was to be covered with the curtain or the veil by the high priest. And then a piece of leather was to be laid on it. And then a cloth of solid blue was to be laid on it. But this was not the only instruction given. It was to be covered. It was to be carried on poles. It was not to be touched. Only certain priests were actually the ones to go in and cover it. And again, number 7-9 says specifically that the Kohathites were not given new carts when others were because it was supposed to be carried on their shoulders. God again and again said, don't do this or don't do that with the ark. 
And almost all of those directions were disobeyed in this moment. Why were they to be so careful? Why were they to be so cautious with the ark? Remember, the ark is the very place on which God's presence and glory dwelled amongst his people. It was the symbol of his ruling, reconciling, and revealing presence. The priests were to be careful with how they handled the ark in certain and prescribed ways because they were dealing with a holy God. They were dealing with the God or whom right now seraphim fly singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They were dealing with the creator and sustainer of the universe, the star breather who is all powerful, all knowing and ever present, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the one who holds the seas and mountains in his hands, the transcendent one who is perfect in all that he does, the God who is in his light and in him there is no darkness the Alpha and Omega who stands outside of time, he who is good and does good, the Holy One who is completely different and completely other, the supreme power of the universe worthy of all of our devotion and focus, they were dealing with God. In that moment, Uzzah forgot who he was dealing with. I wonder what your view of God is this morning. Is the God I just barely scratched the surface of describing the God that you believe in? But more on that in a moment. Not only did Uzzah forget who he's dealing with, but he also forgot who he was. R.C. Sproul writes this. So wait a minute, why did he do it? Why did God lash out at Uzzah? Uzzah's motive was pure. He was trying to preserve the throne of God from being desecrated by the mud. But the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There was nothing about the earth that would desecrate the throne of God. The earth was lying there on the ground doing what God had called the earth to do, being dirt, turning to dust when it was dry and turning to mud when it's mixed with water, obeying the laws of God day in and day in out, doing exactly what dirt is supposed to do. There's nothing defiling about the earth. It was the hand of man that God said, I don't want it on this throne. And many in this room are offended like I was as I, when I first read this quote. The dirt was less polluted than Uzzah's hand? We're dirtier than dirt? Hear me out before you write me and scroll off this morning. Hear me out. Because the reality is that, is that modern thought has convinced us that human beings are generally good. You might be thinking, yeah, I have some bad moments, but... You know, I, I give to charities, I, I'm faithful to my family, uh, and generally treat other people and my coworkers good. But the testimony of Scripture, and I think if we're honest, our experience in the world tells us a different story. It tells us the story of a good and loving God who creates humans to know Him and to make Him known. And from the beginning, instead of receiving God's free love and enjoying the gifts that He gave us, We wanted more. We didn't want to just be in the image of God. We wanted to be God. We wanted to be on the throne. We wanted it our way. The consistent refrain of Scripture is that humans are prone to wander, to rebel against the God who created them, and to naturally choose sin and selfishness. So much so that the psalmist and the apostle Paul will go as far as to say there is no one righteous, not even one. 
There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This was true of Uzzah, and if it was true of him, and if we're honest, it's true of us. I feel this. I feel this intimately. Even though I know I am in Christ this morning, my eyes wander towards people and things they shouldn't every day. My blood begins to boil as I feel myself offended or inconvenienced by people. And I find myself trying to manipulate those I love most to do and say the things I want them to do. Listen, friends, I say this in love, and you need to hear this. If your your heart is hardening right this moment, you need to hear this. You are more sinful than you could possibly imagine. Uzzah was more sinful than he thought, and God was more holy than he thought. The dirt that the ark would have fallen on was sitting there doing what it had been created to do from the beginning. And human beings, and therefore Uzzah, never had. I just wonder if the reason that Uzzah felt comfortable touching the ark in this moment was because God had become too common for him. After all, the ark had been in his father's house for years. Had it just become another thing? Friends, it's worth considering whether or not we've allowed God to become too familiar in our lives, too common. Have we allowed him to become domesticated, just a bigger, slightly better version of ourselves? This is dangerous territory. Even King David, a man after God's own heart, could fall into this trap at times. Look at his response to Uzzah's death. Verse 8 through 10. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah, a very practical name, as it is today. David feared feared the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the Ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Goth. David saw what happened to Uzzah, and he got afraid, and he got angry. This is understandable, right? It's understandable. We feel this. Like, the emotions are real, and, and they make sense. And then David essentially says, if this is what God is like, then, then I don't want to be anywhere near him. We can relate to this. We do this. We have a hard experience in life where we read something difficult in the Bible and we say, if this is what God is like, then I don't want anything to do with him. And if you've been around Vic Gordon at all for very long, you've probably heard him quote his seminary professor who said, the watershed question of faith is this, are you going to tell God who he is? Or are you going to let God tell you who he is? That was the question that David was wrestling with. And that's the question as American Christians, modern Christians, we all need to wrestle with. The truth is that God has told us who he is in the scriptures. And he's been perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus. There's nothing common or familiar or small about him. He's beautiful and complex. He's good and holy. He's loving and wrathful. He's transcendent and near. And when you come to something that's hard for you to swallow about God, there's really 
two, one of two ways of responding. You can walk away from him like a large group of disciples did in John chapter 6 when, when Jesus gave them a hard and, and confusing for them teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Or like the apostle Peter said to Jesus when he said, hey, are you going to leave too? You can say, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Listen, friends. This doesn't mean that the thing you're having a hard time believing or the experience is not hard. There are challenging things to believe about God in the Bible. What it means is that that you've come to believe that Jesus is real, that he's the risen son of God, that he's the only place in all the universe where real life and real hope is found, and you've decided that you're going to receive all of him, not just the parts of him you like. Let's close this point by being clear on something. Uzzah didn't die because God was just mean. He didn't die because God was just angry. He's an angry God who just wants to smite people. He died because God is holy and he was not. I am not an astronomer or a scientist, but I know if a human being gets close enough to the sun, they will die. Not because the sun's being mean or angry, but because the sun is the sun and that person was not. The sun was just being the sun as it always had been. God had literally given warning after warning. Hey, don't do this. I don't want you to die. Don't come near the ark. I don't want you to die. Don't touch it. I don't want you to die. Because sin cannot be in the presence of perfect holiness. So we come to the problem of the universe. How can sinful people have a relationship with the holy God? And to find that answer, we turn to our final point, a holy dance. Look with me at verse 12. It was reported to King David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord wearing a linen ephod. And as I read that, some of you were transported to early 2000s youth group in a certain song, I'll become even more undignified than this. Come on, I thought it was going to get more laughs. Let's go ahead. You don't, but that's a good song. Not really. Zach's cringing right now somewhere, somewhere in the room. But something has changed. Something's changed in our story from verse 10 to verse 13. What changed? What changed in David. David heard a report about the Lord blessing Obed-Edom and everything he did, all the things in his house. And I believe David remembered two things. First, that God desired his presence to be a blessing to his people, not a curse. And second, that God had given instructions for how to handle him. And more importantly, he had made a way for his presence to be amongst sinful people. Why do I think this? Because David and the people's approach to God in verse 13 is completely different than the first time around. Verse 13 tells us that it's being carried this time. Remember, it was supposed to be carried on shoulders. 
They're doing that. Not placed on a cart. And remember, too, um, that there was a way that God had provided to atone for the sins of the people. He established and, and, not, and not touch himself and die. And God, through the sacrificial system, established in Leviticus, had made a way for people's sins to be dealt with, to be forgiven. It was atonement through sacrifice. There's nothing casual about how God, how, how David and the people are approaching the ark this time. Again, we see this in verse 13, as they only take six steps, six steps, and then they sacrifice an ox and a calf. This is a clear statement by David. God, you are holy and we are not. We need to be covered by the blood of a sacrifice. And because God's presence is being brought back to the center of the life of Israel, David danced with joy. He cared not who was watching or what other people thought. His mind was overwhelmed with the presence and goodness of God. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you that we have a reason to dance this morning? Can I tell you that we have even more of a reason to dance than David with liberated joy? It's not because we don't have the same problem that David did. We do. God is still holier than we think he is. We are still more sinful than we think we are. But we know the fulfillment of what David only knew as a promise in the Old Testament. We know the son of David who will sit on the throne forever. The author of Hebrews tells us that while the sacrificial system could deal with sins temporarily, it could not ultimately heal our sin problem. Hebrews 10, 3-4 says, But in the sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Something else was needed to ultimately heal our problem. Something greater, something better. Verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all time. Once for all time. Remember, once a year, every year, the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of a bull and a goat. Every year. Because the sin problem hadn't gone away. Every year, because sin was still the issue. But hear the good news with joy today. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he is inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Why can we dance with liberated joy this morning? Because our faith, our forgiveness does not rest on a sinful man, a sinful human being sprinkling blood of a bull or goat. No, our faith, our forgiveness, our freedom rest on our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who entered in behind the veil and made a way for us by sprinkling us and covering us with his blood. He was the final and perfect sacrifice. No more sacrifices needed. No other sacrifice would suffice. 
to fix our problem. Listen, God is still holier than we think he is. And we are more sinful than we think we are. But through faith in Jesus, God forgives us and cleanses us once for all so that as Colossians says, he can present us holy and faultless and blameless before himself. We need to be moved by this this morning, Christians. And get this, this is why we can dance even more than David. Through the blood of Jesus and the grace of God, we don't just get to have his presence in the midst of us. He actually makes his home in us. If you're a Christian, the God of all the universe dwells in you right now. And if that doesn't floor you, you don't understand what I just said. And we can dance because through Jesus, we don't just get to be his servants. The gospel says that through faith, we become his children, his sons. The author of Hebrews tells us that we can draw near to him with boldness. Listen, the only person that can draw near to a king on his throne and interrupt him with boldness is a son. That is the identity that Jesus gives us as we trust in him for salvation and forgiveness of sins. He gives us his identity. God looks at us and sees the the perfect life of Jesus. Don't you see why David was dancing? And don't you see why we can dance with liberated joy this morning? I know we quote it all the time, but the gospel tells us we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And if you believe this is true this morning, I'm just telling you, you can dance with a liberated joy and one that's even more undignified than this. So I just ask you, if you've never been moved by the gospel before, would you ask the Lord to do that this morning? He's made a way. The problem remains, the holy God, a sinful people. And he made a way. He made a way in his love. He made a way in his sacrifice. He made a way through his blood. And we can know him intimately. So if you want to trust in Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for your sins, or maybe you just feel that you've pushed God to the sidelines and you want, you want to bring him back to the center of your life, one of our pastors would love to pray with you this morning. We'll, we'll be available as we respond in music. Let's pray together. Father, I'm just overwhelmed with the reminder of who you are. You are the holy, holy, holy God. God, you're perfect in all that you do. You're good. You're all-powerful. You're all-knowing. You're ever-present. You're transcendent. But Lord, in Jesus Christ, you draw near. You condescend to know us. And to not make us just servants, but, but children, Lord. Your sons. God, I I, I just want to ask that we'd feel the weight of this morning. And maybe if we came in this morning having a small view of God, that you would enlarge our vision of God. And maybe if we came in this morning having a big view of ourselves, you would crush that, Lord. And in your grace, bring us to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Allows us to draw near to your throne with boldness. 
God, speak the gospel over us and let us sing like free and forgiven and liberated people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.